So if you've been following uh, uh, the story of Joseph, uh, you'll know that he's passed through some, uh, some interesting times. Um, but we've come to the point where he, uh, he's finally got himself a job, uh, which is uh, a welcome time. 13 years before this, he was no more than a sort of a gobby and spoilt 17-year-old. And he's down through the passage of time, managed to get himself uh, thrown down the pit by his brothers, sold into slavery into Potiphar's house, uh, get himself into prison, and finally he's landed in the palace. I mean, it's a job that would turn his LinkedIn listing into meltdown. I mean, this isn't just a job. This is the job, the most powerful job in the nation. Uh, and despite his very painful history, is Joseph ready to be a blessing uh, and fruitful in the lives of others? Uh, but the danger is that we finish up looking at the small picture without seeing the big picture. Week by week, we've been going through the small pictures of, it, of, of moments in Joseph's life. Uh, but what about the big picture that they all add up to? It's very easy, I think, to focus on the, the what's happening now and next without looking at the what happened then, and we've got to learn from it. What, what do I mean by that? Well, uh, you familiar with these two little, I was going to say guys, but they may not be guys. We, we don't know what's belong the, below the waterline there, but they may just be cherubs or whatever they are. I, I actually have got a, a great love for these two. Um, you, you, maybe you've got them on a tea towel somewhere, you've got them on a, a, on a, a greetings card somewhere. They've been everywhere, and I, I, I've been enchanted by these. Uh, and so much so that a couple of Christmases ago, my wife bought me a, a little book of paintings, and they were on the cover, which was great. And then I looked inside and had the shock of my life because what I discovered was they were a very small part of a very big picture. And what I'd been missing was the big picture which they were, were part of um, when I got the book. Uh, and, and so what's the big picture in Joseph's life journey to that point? What, what do we get from that 13 years that he's been traveling through that takes him from this really quite obnoxious mouthy 17-year-old to someone who's going to be entrusted uh, with the goods of a nation, the future of a nation, the survival of a nation, and so generally is going to be fruitful in their lives. Well, what are the big picture? Well, some would point to the fact that uh, God had worked things out to bring Joseph to exactly the right place at exactly the right time. Uh, in other words, that God is at work in our histories and can be trusted, and uh, I'd go for that. Uh, there are others who point to the fact that God had used these 13 years to actually shape his character and give him the equipment that he needed to be the person that God wanted him to be. Uh, and I'd buy into that as well. I think those are two very good understandings of what's been going on in those past 13 years. Um, but, but I think there's, there's actually something more important than that. Uh, for all these 13 years, Joseph had essentially been in situations which were not his first choosing. He spent 13 years where he did not want to be. And that kind of is like a, the understatement of life, I think. But I think these, these 13 years are really important to understand. That, that in these 13 years, he had been where it was not his first choice. And yet in those situations... However bad, however where he did not want to be, however didn't he feel he deserved to be there, nevertheless, he flourished 
and blessed others, which to me means that there is something of immense value to us here. See, I think uh, it's probably true to say that we will spend much of our life in situations we would rather not be in, all right? They may not be as bad as that, but they, they, they could be. I mean, it might be right now you feel your life is the palace, or that's what you're heading for, and that's wonderful. But wherever you are in your passage of life, my expectation there will be a time, and it may be a long time, we are actually not living in the world of our first choice. And it's not a matter about whether we're not living in the city we wanted to live in or got the job we wanted to, uh, to have or the car we wanted to drive. There's something more specific than that. The job isn't the job we would ideally choose. Uh, the family isn't exactly the one we would have chosen to have. The exam results on the qualifications haven't worked out the way we'd intended. The relationships we're in are not the way we would wish them to be. The church is not quite working the way we would like it to happen. The circumstances, do you get the picture? My expectation is for all of us at some time or other, and for some of us right now, we're living in our second choice world. We may not have been down the pit, or served as a slave, or been in prison, but it can certainly at times feel like that. And our temptation is to live as if only people, you know, we live in an if only world. If only my circumstances were different. If only I had the world that I really ought to be living in, I could be good stuff for God. If only I could be in exactly the place where everything is right, then I could be really flourishing and fruitful for God. But the fact is, for most of us, that's not the way it is. Do you know what it is for Joseph? For Joseph, it was in the cold winter of his second choice world that he was fruitful, that he flourished that he was a blessing to others. And my question is, if for him, why not me? If for him, why not you? If he had it much worse than we will ever experience, and he was a blessing to others, and he flourished, and he finished up to being really useful for God, then why not you and me? What can we learn from Joseph in these 13 years and apply to our lives? And I think it's important to grasp this, because this concept of living in a second-choice world is actually a major theme of Scripture. If you understand Joseph's journey, you understand that it was to his great-grandfather that came the great promise that there would be a nation flowing from his loins. There would be this great people who would honor God and follow God and be the people of God, the chosen people. And part of that history is Joseph finishing up being in Egypt and the brothers and family come and they settle because that's where the food is and they grow into a, a large group of people who finally are facing the tyranny of Pharaoh. They finally get released. They cross the Red Sea. They wander for a few years. And our imagination probably then is they now settle in the land of milk and honey, have a few wars and uh, appoint a few kings and uh, wait for the Messiah to come. Problem, it wasn't like that. About 300 years after the time we're talking about now, a large number of those people of God were taken off to a second choice world. They were taken off to exile. Vast numbers were captured by King Nebuchadnezzar II of Babylon and transported into exile. That's why much of the Old Testament doesn't take place in the land of Israel. It takes place in the land of in, in, in Babylon. It's the setting for Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and his friends. Those things, stories we're familiar with. Some of the Psalms are written in that setting. 
And, and we miss something. We don't understand that, that great chunks of the Old Testament are not written at a time when the people of God have an opportunity to flourish. They're at a time when the people of God are under the thumb. And during the 70 years of, uh, of their captivity, God's people had to live out their faith with the living God in a hostile environment that wasn't of their choosing. So it's a big theme going through Scripture. You pick it up with a, a psalm you'll be familiar with. You can, I can, as I start to say the words, some of you will even hear the, the melody ringing in your ears. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion was their land of their first choice. And they said, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing one of your songs of Zion. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while we're in a foreign land? Now, of course, what they, at the heart they were saying was, how can we be happy when the situation is so bad? But the question still comes, how can you sing the Lord's song in a strange land? It was the challenge that Joseph had 300 years before this. And, and you know, it's not just an issue for us. It's an actual an issue for, in, in a bigger sense, for the church in the Western world. You see, for, for past generations, uh, the uh, for past generations, the uh, uh, the church was, in a sense, living in its first choice world in in the Western culture. We were the centre of everything. In the centre of every village was a church. The shadow of the steeple fell over everything that happened. People beyond it shared its values. Uh, there was no Sunday trading. There was sanctity of life. There was modesty and purity. Uh, the word was my bond. If you'd have travelled on a London top of a London bus at that time and foolishly just said to everyone, Jesus loves me, this I know, a little chorus would have come from the whole of the bus, for the Bible tells me so. The whole of the culture had bought in, even if they weren't following. I suggest you don't try that today, but if you want to prove it, go and do it, and they'll probably take you off the bus screaming. But what's happened? That world, that culture has changed. We are now effectively in Babylon. This is, this is our world today. Can you see how small the cross is in that, in that central situation? Uh, the, the world has been secularized. The world has changed. There are multitudes of religion. Religion is kept out of everything. Uh, if you're as old as me, you've actually experienced what it was to be carried off into captivity. I can remember just about going to Sunday school when most kids went to Sunday school. And I've gradually watched my culture change so that I've been carried off into Babylon. It's possible the younger you are, the more likely is you've been born here. So you don't understand the change that's happened. But we have to deal with that. Uh, and our job is not to turn back the clock to recreate Christendom as great swathes of the church in America are trying to do if you watch it. Uh, for example, it's, uh, it's not a matter of uh, are we free to wear a cross, but it's an issue of how we are to carry our cross in our second choice world. Our task is not to recreate a promised land, but discern how we're going to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land as strangers and pilgrims so that we can be as fruitful as Joseph was. So what can we learn from Joseph as he puts on his coat and his ring and has authority? How did he make his way through those years and flourish? What were the keys for him to being fruitful then and how he met the challenge? 
What I like about Joseph, and it's worth underlining, he wasn't a priest or a prophet, all right? He wasn't one of those who gets paid to pray, all right? He, 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 wasn't, he, he wasn't an apostle. He wasn't any of these people. He was just an ordinary working guy. Not that he did much work, but that was the credentials he had. He was a farmer's boy. He was one of us. He was an ordinary bloke who was going to make it work out to honor God with what he did. So let me suggest five short, simple reasons why it seems to me as you look at the big picture, you understand why Joseph flourished. The first thing is that Joseph knew God had spoken. Dreams then, which came to him, would have been in his understanding God's voice to him. There was a limited means for God to communicate in those days. The Bible wasn't available. Jesus hadn't come. So dreams was one of the key ways in which God spoke into lives. And Joseph had no doubt that God had spoken into his life through a dream about his future. That was a key point in his life. That was something that he was going to navigate by. There was no doubt that he understood that and would have carried it through in his understanding whether he was in the pit, the palace, or the prison. In the second choice world, he had something which was true and unchanging. Let me illustrate what I mean. Architects, I understand, when they design buildings and they decide where they're going to go on a plot of land, they create a fixed point beyond the building so the builders know where it's going to come. So they look for a tree all right, or a manhole, and they reference that on the joint. They don't look for a donkey, all right, because that would create significant problems because, believe it or not, donkeys move. They look for a fixed point that is unchanging, which the whole thing can be built on, and that's what Joseph had. What he had was this fixed point that God had spoken into his life. What does that mean for you and me? Well, how has God spoken into your life? What is your, what is your key reference unchanging point that you can constantly refer to while traveling through your second choice world. The revelation that God has given you in Jesus is the prime one. A fixed moment in history when God acted in truth. That moment in your own life where, whether in an instant over a period of time you've grown to know him, experienced in your, in your life, and when you come to celebrate communion here, with us this evening, you know that that fixed point is yours. That is the reference point wherever we are in our lives, whether in the palace or whether in our point of second choice. The second thing is that Joseph had, or you may have, let me just say, you may not have the circumstances you want, but you will have the God you need because this God does not change and he's spoken to. The second one is, is, that, is that God was with Joseph. I'm always puzzled by those prayers that Christian pray. Dear God, please be with us tonight. You know, it's impossible for him not to be with us. If you figured, if God is everywhere, he is certainly there. What we're asking is for some sort of greater sense of his presence, aren't we? And it was something that was true of Joseph wherever he was. Whatever the situation he was in, God was with him. But more than just hanging about, he was there on his side. He was there cheering for him. He was there wanting his success. The risk we have in passing through our second choice world is to imagine that somehow God is waiting for us when we get to the palace. Or he's kind of a bit 
displeased with us because we've got landed in this mess we're in. God is with, was with Joseph and will be with us wherever we are in our second choice world. The third thing is that uh, Joseph just got on with it. Uh, he he kind of had this great ordinary attitude. There he is in situations he doesn't want to be. And because of the, the character and his commitment, Joseph put him in charge of the household. That wouldn't have happened from the moment he walked through the door. He'd have seen Joseph getting on with his life and deciding he could be trusted with more responsibility. Or the warden put Joseph in charge of all those in the prison. Not instantly, he would have seen what he was doing day by day and trusted him. What have we got there? Joseph just, in his second choice world, didn't sit down and sulk, say, poor me, I wish I wasn't here. He just got on doing the best he could. He was faithful. And faithful to me is simply getting up every day and saying, I'll do the best I can, as often I can, to the best of my ability. I've got to tell you, this is a, a personal story for me. Because I felt, I, I spent a significant period of time in a second choice world. It's a good few years ago now, I was uh, uh, a director responsible for a, a significant Christian ministry. And uh, for a bunch of reasons, I, uh, uh, I was removed from my post. Um, I, I guess that, uh, in a sense, I would identify with Joseph. He, he played his own part in his downfall. I would accept that of me. But at the same time, the sense of injustice of what happened uh, was overwhelming. Uh, whatever should happen to Joseph, it should never have been involved being thrown down the pit. And that's where I felt I found myself. Uh, the promises that I sensed God had made to me seemed to have disappeared. Everything I'd been working for had gone. Uh, some great answers to prayer and significant things had happened. We're all over. Uh, I'd, uh, it's the one where you leave your phone on the desk and they escort you out of the building and... Uh, and don't cry for me. But it was a, this was a real painful time. A few days later, my, the vicar uh, of the church we were at then uh, just pastorally took me to lunch and he looked me in the eyes. He said, Peter, he said, so what do you miss most? And it was a great question. And I found myself saying, do you know what I miss, what I miss most is a reason to get up in the morning. Just, just a, a reason to carry on in a world that I don't want to, to be in. And it was within days I discovered Joseph. And I realized how he had dealt with it. He just got up every single morning and decided to be faithful. To do his best, to do his best, and to do his best. And I figured if, if Joseph could do that, then why not me? And that would be the truth of each one of us. God simply calls us in places where we do not want to be, but he has allowed us to be there to simply get up every day and be faithful, to do our best with what he's got. Four, Joseph didn't conform to the standards around him. Okay, so on the left, Potiphar's wife, uh, smiling and saying, come and get it. Uh, on the right, Joseph, a hot-blooded teenager with hormones that have no conscience. Uh, but he did. He didn't go with the flow. Joseph could have come up with a list of at least 10 good reasons why, why saying yes was the wisest and most sensible thing to do. But he didn't. He decided he would not let his standard slip to the levels of those around him. And of course, 
Christians are big on the sexual bit and uh, mess with someone's plumbing and you're all sorts of in trouble and you're in the church. Uh, but gossip and badmouth others, oh, we get away with that. Uh, manipulate your tax returns, that's okay. Climb a bit more than you're due. Treat those who report to you unfairly. We get away with all of those. You see, there are many ways in which we can find ourselves falling to a lower standard and allowing to slip around us. Uh, Paul in Galatians gives a whole list. He talks about sexual immorality, which is doing it. He talks about impurity, which is thinking about it. But he talks about making idols of money and education and possessions and reputation, of rage and uncontrolled anger, selfish ambition, putting ourselves first, divisions, envy, drunkenness, lack of self-control. And at the end, he says, and the like. In other words, there is this unending list of ways in our second-class world where we can allow our lives to sink down to the level of those around us, and Joseph didn't. See, in our second-choice life, God expects us to have first-class standards. And if we do that, then God will bless and use us. Of course, for Joseph, that came as a price. Prison was the price. There will be times in our second-class world when we make our choices to honor God and do right. It will cost us. But fruitfulness will come as a result. Four, five, Joseph brought God to the party. Do you recognize him? Alastair Campbell, Tony Blair's, you remember him? Spin doctor. It was, it was uh, Alastair was asked what Tony's religious views were. And his answer was, oh, we don't do God. Uh, but Joseph did, time and again. In his second class, in his second choice world, he chose to do God time and again. In Potiphar's house, his answer when invited to sin was, how could I sin against God? In prison, asked to interpret dreams, it was, do not interpretations belong to God? In other words, I can't do it, look to God. In the palace, asked to interpret uh, the Pharaoh's dreams, I can't, but God will. If I'm honest, in our second choice worlds, this is probably the hardest of the five, isn't it? Really. The sense of losing faith by mentioning God is much harder than all the other things I've talked about. Certainly that's my experience. You know, that we simply don't want to be seen as slightly cookie, slightly off the wall, slightly odd. And with that in mind, let's be clear what Joseph didn't do, all right? Joseph was not po-faced or in-your-face. There was no pointy fingers with Joseph. He didn't finish up saying to, uh, to the woman who wanted him to, uh, to, to commit adultery, ah, oh, yes, you, you nasty, evil woman, don't you understand? He simply referenced where he was in his relationship with God. Joseph didn't do, I'm better than you. He didn't do, my God's bigger than yours or my better than, better than yours. He simply, naturally and simply did God. Didn't make a big deal of it, just did it. And of course, it was important to them because people in our second choice world need to have a reference to the creator and maker of all. But you know, I think it was also desperately important to Joseph because the moment he had mentioned God in that setting, he had standards he had to live up to. And that's the challenge for us, to be able to speak naturally and clearly and winsomely 
and not in your face, referencing the God in our lives to the people around us, and be accountable. So that's, that's the big picture. That's the big picture. Joseph knew God had spoken. God knew, he knew God was with him. Uh, he knew uh, God, he just got on with it. He didn't conform to the standards around him. And he brought God to the party. That's the, the big picture. But there's something in our reading this evening which kind of pulls it together in a, in, in a remarkable way. That's the big picture. We've had dreams, but names were the other big thing in the culture of the day. Names mattered not just because you wanted to choose something that uh, no one else had, and they seemed to do that all the time, but names had great symbolic uh, symbolism. And so Joseph carefully thought about what name he would give his two sons born. And the first one, uh, uh, Joseph named his first son Manasseh, and the second son he named Ephraim. What's going on here? Well, their names were significant and helped us to pull this whole thing together. See, Manasseh uh, sounds like and may be derived from the Hebrew word forget. And he'd been chosen because Joseph said, God had made me forget my troubles. For Joseph, his son's name was going to be a forever reminder and a public statement that he'd been able to let go of the past. And think of all the resentment and grudges that Joseph could have clung on to, even by the time he'd made the journey to the greatest job in the land. Think of the resentment he could have easily shown to his father, who showed him such unreasonable favoritism he'd finished up being abused by his brothers. Or think about the brothers he could have resented. He took them, he took them their lunch, and they took away his future, so they thought. Because of them, he was a slave. Because of them, he was vulnerable in the lives of a woman who was going to lie and put him in prison. Because of them, he finished up being abandoned, forgotten in prison. How easy for Joseph to say, they are to blame, I'm the victim. My years of misery are their fault. How much resentment and bitterness could they've come up, even there and towards God, imagining the brooding and resentment there could be. What's that great statement there? Don't get mad, get even. That wasn't here where he was at all. He was determined not to get mad. And with God's help, Joseph was able to forget the evil he'd suffered and those responsible. He let it go. And that's why his first son was called forgetting. Forgetting the past over which he had no control. And there was no energy going to be wasted by thinking about that. With God's help, it was all about forgetting. But then we have the second son, Ephraim. Name Ephraim sounds like the Hebrew for twice fruitful. Not just a bit fruitful, not mega fruitful, but twice fruitful. And if, if forgetting was something Joseph had done with God's help, his being fruitful was something that God was doing in his life, making him fruitful. Fruitful in character, fruitful in service, and in the blessings of others. You'd seen him fruitful in the prison, You'd seen him fruitful in, uh, as a slave, and now he's been fruitful in the palace. But I wonder if you see the link between the two. I wonder if you see the, the clear link. I think Joseph must have got it. See the link between Joseph's forgetting and his fruitfulness? To me, the two go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. It was because Joseph let go of the past wrongs and hurts and resentments that he could be candidate for fruitfulness. See, when your hands are holding on to the past, they have no room for the future. So, it is pointy finger time. What about you and me? 
I don't know where you are in your uh, second uh, choice world, whether you've had it, you're in it, or you're heading for it, um, but it is pointed finger time. What do we want to take on board that would make us more useful in God's service, more complete? Above all, is there anything deep down that we cling on to from the past that is amp- impacting our fruitfulness for God? Dust may have settled on it, but it's just possible uh, it may not be so much forgotten as buried alive. I wonder if just this evening, as we prepare our lives and hearts to come and break bread and drink wine together as a great act of fellowship with ourselves and God, we might just ask ourselves that question. Uh, what is it we need to, 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 to deal with? Might be this a moment to just deal with those deep-seated resentments of the past that others have treated us or what's gone on. Maybe this is a time to thank God that we've been able to, with his help, move on and be fruitful. Or a moment to think about those things that, those five things that we ought to be living up to if we want to be fruitful in God's service. And that's the point where I ask you to take your balloon. And if you haven't got one, nick someone else's while they're not looking. Because what we're going to do now is, I want you to understand, totally symbolic, all right? This is not a magic act, but it is symbolic and hopefully might be helpful. In a moment, I'm going to invite you to inflate your balloon. You know how you do that? It's called breathing out. And I'm going to suggest as, as we do it, we might have in mind those things that we simply want to say goodbye to and breathe out into, yeah? Maybe it could be the resentments for the past or the present. Or it might be that, that we, we need to find ourselves um, more aware of the fixed point of Jesus in our lives and honor him. Maybe we need to remind ourselves that God is with us and we've missed it. Or that we just want to make a fresh commitment to keep on going and being faithful. Or maybe it's that we need to breathe out more often the name of God naturally and winsomely to the lives of others. Does that make sense? So I'm going to ask you just calmly to, and and if none of those apply, just join in sympathy with the rest as an act of solidarity, right? But this this is your moment, prayerfully, quietly,